Welcome to the wicket. Yes, we're here again with another episode of The Wicket. And with me, as ever, are John Pike, the Arab News columnist, and Sebastian Hummergain, Arab News cricket writer, to look at all things to do with the sport. And we've got uh, a very special podcast for you uh, this time, because, of course, we've got the latest on the ICC Cricket World Cup in India, and we'll preview the semi-finals. It's India against New Zealand on Wednesday the 15th of November in Mumbai and South Africa versus Australia in Kolkata the following day, that's Thursday the 16th. We'll not just touch on uh, those important matters though, we'll also touch upon the fact that uh, the ICC has suspended Sri Lanka on the basis of political interference in the governance of the game in that country. We're going to cover off the Women's One Day International Series between Bangladesh and Pakistan that took place in Mirpur. That finished on Friday, November the 10th, with a seven-wicket win for the hosts to give them a series success by two matches to one. And John will give us his perspective on the Blades of Glory Cricket Museum that he visited in Pune after our previous podcast. Let's get going then. And first of all, where else to start but the ICC Cricket World Cup. It's uh, 44 matches in, 10 venues, and it all comes down to the last three matches, the two semi-finals and the final to determine the world champions in the men's 50-over format, with hosts India facing New Zealand in Mumbai before South Africa goes head-to-head with Australia in Kolkata. The winners of those two games going up against each other in Ahmedabad. Let's go through those uh, two matches in detail, starting with India against New Zealand. This, of course, is a repeat of the semi-final of four years ago, when New Zealand beat India in a match that went into a second day because of bad weather. India, they're the only unbeaten side in the tournament, having won every match they played. And uh, only twice, really, have they been put under any pressure. One of those times, of course, was against New Zealand when they chased down 274 to win in Dharmashala. And the other was against Australia when they were reduced to two runs for three wickets in pursuit of 200 in their opening match of the tournament. They came through both of those tests impressively, and now they're within two matches of a third 50-over title following on from 1983 and 2011. The latter, like this tournament, of course, on home soil. New Zealand, well, they were the runners-up in the previous two editions in 2015 against Australia and 2019 against England. They've never won the Men's Cricket World Cup. They won their first four matches in this tournament before losing their next four but booked their spot in the semi-finals with a convincing win over Sri Lanka to stop the rot. John, on paper, this looks like a win for India 99 times out of 100, you'd say. But unlike uh, the other wins Rohit Sharma's side have had, suddenly, of course, other matches, I should say, suddenly, of course, this is do or die. How do you think they'll respond to the pressure of a knockout match? They've appeared pretty nervous uh, in this World Cup. They're determined, they're driven. They're well honed. They even seem to be enjoying themselves. And even um, even Virat Kohli took a wicket. And I doubt if uh, if that's going to desert them in the semi-final. The only doubt I had at the beginning of the tournament was whether the batting was too dependent upon Kohli and Sharma. And you mentioned the 2019 semi-final v New Zealand. 
Well, in that India were what five for three, I think, and twenty-four for four. Now that was in a wet Manchester. This semi-final is going to be played in a hot Mumbai, uh, and I think the advantage is heavily with uh, with India. Although it may be one of those matches where the toss could actually be an influencing factor. Dibash, Virat Kohli and Rohit Sharma, they've topped 400 runs. The side has got five individual hundreds. There were a couple for uh, Kale Raoul and uh, Shreyas Ayer in their last group game against the Netherlands, following on from two by Virat Kohli and one by Rohit Sharma. Is the side reliant on Kohli and Sharma too much, as uh, John uh, mentioned there or or is it uh, more of a more of a balance now at the top order and all the batting is looking in good order uh it's bound to be with the individual and the quality they possess i think Kohli and Rohit i think they are the best uh, in current generation and they are uh, no wonder that india is top order heavy even though Ayer and Rahul both mid centuries against the Netherlands, I think uh, India are yet to be tested in the middle orders. Uh, so if, if we go back to the last edition, I think New Zealand uh, had their top order t- tested. I think they failed and the middle order couldn't uh, get the game back, even though Dhoni and Zadiza tried. So it could be a similar situation this time around as well if the top order fails. So they're yet to have Surya Kumar Yadav, who is now a regular since Hardik Pandey is out injured. So they have not uh, got uh, their main middle ba- order batter tested. So I think uh, that if the top order falters, uh, they've they've got a big job in hands. And but the way Kohli is playing, I think he's looking at his best. And Rohit and Gill, they've got starts up top. Gill is yet to get his big score, and maybe semi final is the day for him. John, there's an argument that says batters set up matches, bowlers win them. And in that sense, then surely India have to be oh so confident heading into this match because there's not really been a weak link in the attack. All of them have taken 10 wickets or more and they bowled outsides consistently. You think of them uh, rolling over South Africa for 83, Sri Lanka for, for 55. Can those bowlers, the five bowlers, be put under pressure? Uh, there's little evidence thus far. I thought the Netherlands did okay, but uh, they were batting on, on what looked like a road. They didn't really have the ability to put any pressure on. I still think that Australia is the, the only team that can, whether they're going to get that chance. It remains to be seen this week. Uh, and there is an argument that India's current crop of bowlers is the best they've ever had. And it's a good argument. It hasn't happened overnight. It's, it's been happening really since 2019. Uh, when you look at the semi-final against New Zealand in that year, um, there was Bumrah, there was um, Kumar, there was Pandya, Jadeja and Chahal. Um, of course, uh, you know, Pandya's injured and probably been in the side. You add uh, Siraj and, and Shami and then you know the other spinner that no one can seem to read. So they, they've got such all-round strength and if one gets under pressure, I think there, there's a, another or another two who can, uh, who can mop up that pressure. Um, we'll see if and when Australia get a chance, whether they can um, take the game to them. Well, Sebash, the word you always hear when talking about South Africa in knockout matches is that they're chokers. But surely, if you look at the facts, that's a label that could be given to New Zealand. Over the years, they've lost six Cricket World Cup semi-finals, and they've lost the two finals that they've reached as well. Is that a fair criticism or or should we look at it from the other perspective and say, well, do you know what? they make the absolute maximum of the resources that they have. I think it's because of the expectation that people have. Uh, New Zealand, they hardly enter the tournament as the favourites, but they produce good cricket and get to the top 
throughout uh, with the t- tournament going on. But if you look at South Africa, I think the individual players they have and had in past, I think there's huge expectations from them, from the supporters, even the neutrals. Uh, you, you, everyone likes to see someone like Jack Scalis, Avery Villiers, Graham Smith win the World Cup, and they're neutrals' favorite, and that's why. There's huge expectation from them to deliver in these tournaments. And uh, even with India and Pakistan, let's say, uh, there's uh, expectation that South Africa might beat these teams and get front. But uh, they have been they have been disappointing in that front. So I think uh, if you look at the numbers, New Zealand have faltered more. And this time, either one, I think, or both of them can reach the finals. But uh, it would be nice to see one of these teams being a champion, will get a new champion. It's good for the game, but... It's tough for both the teams with the history they have. And New Zealand, I think uh, they've got a big test in front of them and it it will be tough for them. Well, one New Zealand player who really has enhanced his reputation during the course of this tournament is Rachin Ravindra. John, he was a player you highlighted on this podcast even before a ball was bowled as a player to watch. And sure enough, he's lived up to your billing as one of the leading run scorers. 565 runs, 300s. New Zealand have also got Daryl Mitchell. They've got Devon Conway. He's been impressive too. But are they too reliant on that trio for runs? And what about the return of Kane Williamson, who, of course, missed the start as he recovered from a knee injury and he was then sidelined again with a fractured thumb? Have they got what it takes to put enough runs on the board to put pressure on India? Kane's been a big miss. You could argue that it's actually been instrumental in the emergence of Rajin Ravindra. Um, just to um, add to um, uh, your suggestion that uh, you know, New Zealand uh, could be regarded as chokers, I, I think, au contraire, I think as Subash mentioned, they've really overachieved for years, given the resources that they have available. And they were really robbed, I think, in the 2019 final. This time around, they've not really bowled quite as well as expected, and it's put extra pressure on, on that batting. Yes, it most certainly has. Uh, they, they've definitely had to uh, to score uh, a lot of runs. When you think about uh, the match, for example, against Australia, where Australia got 388, yes, that really is uh, a lot of pressure on the batting. But what about New Zealand's reliance in this tournament on Mitch Santner and Trent Bolton, to a lesser extent, Lockie Ferguson? Sebash, they lost Matt Henry to injury. Ish Sodi, the leg spinner, he's played just once. Tim Saudi hasn't played at all. Does their attack look potent enough to you? Uh, I think they've not quite raised the level I expected in this tournament. Henry's injury is a real blow for New Zealand, and Santner has been a lone wicket taker and go to guy beat taking the wickets, putting that barrier in the run. I think the quality board possesses. He has been below par and has been playing in India in the IPL. And I think uh, there's much expected from Bolt. And if you see Lucky Ferguson's pace has not got the reward that Kiwis are hoping for as well. The only positive that uh, Kiwis will be looking is, I think uh, Bolt has been troublemaker for India in recent years. And he would love to continue that in the semifinals as well. And it's... Looking at the attack, I think it's one of Saudi or Saudi will be getting the nod uh, in this semi-final, depending on the surface that's in play. And they need to get the best after this bowling attack if they want to trouble India because they've been unstoppable. And the batting, I think uh, the batting can do it against India, but it's the bowling attack that's really uh, going to be the 
decided in this game. Well, yes, India have been unstoppable in the tournament so far, but I'm going to put you both on the spot now. John, first of all, prediction time, India against New Zealand. Which way is it going to go and why? India got a pool of players at their peak. For some of them, it's going to be their last World Cup. The way they're playing, conditions, uh, they're playing in favourable. They have the team to win. Uh, my only uh, reservation is just to see what happens at the toss. But um, surely um, this is a match that, uh, that India will win. Yeah, it's a one-off match, of course. All of a sudden, the pressure is on both sides. Shabash, home expectation on India. Can they cope with it? I think they can. The quality of the players that's in line, I think Kohli, Rohit, uh, this is the time to prove for them. And I think they, if they want to repeat what the pre previous generation did in 2011, I think this is a must-win match for them. And something that could not happen in 2019, I think this is the time for them. And if they can see off the first 10 overs, they can certainly win this. Well, I think there's agreement there that uh, India are very much the favourites in that first semi-final. Let's look now at the second semi-final between the sides that finished second and third in the group stage, South Africa and Australia. South Africa, well, when they fired, they've looked mighty impressive. They won seven of their nine group games. They made five scores of 300 or more. They've had eight individual hundreds and, uh, like India, five bowlers with 10 wickets or more. That's the good news. The bad news is Captain Temba Bavuma He's nursing a hamstring injury of some description. We don't know for sure how serious it is. And in the two matches they've lost, they were really poor. First against the Netherlands in Dharmashala and then against uh, India in Calcutta when they were bowled out for 83 with uh, Ravindra Jadeja taking five for 33. Subhash, which South Africa is going to turn up for this match? The ultra-confident one we've seen for the majority of the tournament or the faltering one that appeared in those two losing matches? Uh, well, I think uh, Toss will have a bigger say on that. Uh, the South Africa we've seen defending this score is totally different from the chasing one. They've come out fearless when the bat first, but not quite the same when it comes to chasing. They have not been able to plan out their chase like they have been batting first. Uh, the Afghanistan game, I think, helped them a bit, but uh, quick, quick wickets in the middle, and I think they'll be tested. Uh, of everyone, the keeper is yet to score. Uh, the, we should look at that because... If if you look at the South African batting, everyone has been getting the big scores. Uh, Quinton Daycock, I think, is... I have to say that as a cricket fan, it's sad that he's leaving the game in this run of form. And I think uh, Babuma should make his presence felt in this game. And we might see South Africa at their best if that happens. But a lot has to do with the toss. I think if they are chasing, I think South Africa will have a tough nut to crack. Well, the Babuma issue is uh, a very interesting one. Purely and simply because um, I think we all know from experience that you don't recover from a hamstring injury in a matter of days. So it'll be a question of them balancing up whether to take a risk with him and uh, and play him in the match or simply uh, just say, well, look, uh, he's not going to be fit enough. Let's get a player in there who is. John, South Africa, well, they won and won well when these two sides met in the first week of the tournament. That seems a lifetime ago now. They crushed Australia by 134 runs in Lucknow. Does that count for anything coming into this match? I shouldn't think it counts for anything at all. Australia is now in a really good place. They've gelled at the right time. Totally different situation. And uh, also, John, there's history between these two sides, isn't there, in semi-finals. They've played a, a dramatic encounter in the 1999 World Cup, where, of course, the match finished as a tie. Uh, and then uh, that, that was, of course, was one of the great one-day internationals of all time. And then 
in 2007. Australia won handsomely in the Caribbean. Again, do those matches count for anything, even psychologically, especially for South Africa, knowing that they haven't got across the line in these matches against Australia before? Or is it simply history? I think so. Um, times are different. Players are different. I suspect those matches in 1999 and 2007 aren't really relevant to South Africa. However, uh, you might expect some Australian banter if the occasion arises. South Africa, they've lost three semi-finals. They lost to New Zealand in in 2015. They've never been in a final. How much pressure will they feel on that basis? Is it is it a case of feeling weighed down by having everything to prove or, or, or thinking to themselves, do you know what, we've got nothing to lose? I think uh, this South Africa should take this as a big opportunity to write a history. If you see the squad, there are many match winners in the team and some of them are just beginning their international careers in this stage. So I think they need to put down the sad history aside and write one of their own. If they start looking at the old results, they'll just start putting a pressure on themselves and that may push them being in that part of history. So they want to come better than that, write a new history and make sure that the old days are gone. So I think they just need to come and deliver what they have been doing throughout the tournament and especially in the batting side. If the nerve starts taking over, I think they won't be able to deliver what they've been doing, the fearless intent that we've seen in the South Africa batting side. I think they should just play pressure fee, come express themselves and get the result that they're willing to have for the country. Well, John, the whole of South Africa was buoyed by the rugby union side winning the the Rugby World Cup. You just had a look at the, the scenes at O'R Tambo Airport in Johannesburg. When, when the team returned, just thousands and thousands and thousands of people celebrating. Even the cricketers said uh, it lifted them. Do you think they can ride that feel-good wave themselves now? It's difficult to know. I think these moods are, are pretty transient. They're facing an opponent whose form is on the rise. And I have sort of noticed that South Africa have looked a little flaky under pressure. Yes, you were uh, you were in Dharmashala, weren't you, uh, John, for that, yeah. uh, that, that defeat? that they suffered at the hands of the Netherlands. And, and you certainly detected that that flakiness, as you put it, uh, in that performance, didn't you? I did, for sure, yes. Although um, no one could regard that as a, as a one-off, but uh, it's a pretty serious one-off. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they're up against Australia, as we've said, and, and they looked down and out after uh, two matches. They were unconvincing defeats at the hands of India and South Africa. But since then, they've gone on a run of seven wins in a row, the latest of them on Saturday when they chased down 307 to win against Bangladesh with more than five overs in hand as Mitch Marsh hammered an unbeaten 177. But despite that run of form, there are still questions you would say for them to answer in this tournament. John Glenn Maxwell was rested for that Bangladesh game after his double hundred heroics against Afghanistan. Steve Smith returned after missing that Afghanistan match with Vertigo. So assuming Maxwell comes back for the semi-final, who misses out? I was at the that match against Bangladesh when Mitch Marsh uh, well nailed down the number three spot. I think we have to assume that, that Maxwell returns for the semi-final. Very difficult to uh, envisage him not being in it. Talk was uh, that it's between Labashenya and Stonis. It would be a bit harsh on either of them. But then you know, Australians aren't noted for their sentimentality in, in selection. I think we assume Stark returns, although for Abbott, Stark hasn't been at his best. So I would, um, given that uh, Maxwell's bowled well in this tournament, it looks to me as if Stonis might be the man to miss out. 
Well, uh, that, of course, would, uh, to an extent, weaken the batting and the bowling because of his all-round potential. But let's look at the bowling specifically. And, Sebash, Adam Zampa, he's the leading wicket-taker in the tournament with 22 wickets. And Josh Hazelwood, he's been exceptional in the power play-overs. But are Australia over-reliant on that pair? I mention it because Pat Cummins and Mitch Stark, they haven't been at their best in this tournament. Stark was rested the last group game against uh, Bangladesh. And in 15 overs of um, other bowlers, Travis Head, Marcus Stoinis and Mitch Marsh, they leaked 128 runs in that match. So uh, yeah, there, there has been a huge reliance on Zampa and Hazelwood in this tournament so far, hasn't there? Yeah, Zampa has been doing it for those is I think, uh, his top of the wicket starts. Getting the really important wickets as well. Most of them in the middle overs, breaking partnerships and pushing Australia in front foot. He hasn't had a spin twin to help him. Maxwell would have been handy if he was able to ball. But uh, if not for wickets, just to tighten the round flow and create pressure as well, I think Maxwell would have been a great partner. But Stoinis and Mars, I think both have gone for plenty in this tournament and the quota for fifth bowler will be tough if there is no help for the seamers in the wicket. Regarding Stark and Cummins, I think they're yet to have their big game. Uh, did, he's been doing pretty good bowling, not just the wickets, but he's creating that pressure with uh, putting opposition batsmen in the, uh, not giving much runs. So uh, if Maxwell can't bowl, I think South Africa will be looking at that fifth bowler, the part-timers. Once they came, they might target them and Australia will have a hard time to get that 10 overs uh, filled in. John, Australia, they've got tremendous self-belief. We saw that against Afghanistan. We saw it in the nerveless run chase against uh, Bangladesh. They've won five World Cup titles more than any other side. How much will that amount of self-belief and knowledge that they've been there, done that, got the T-shirt count uh, going into this match? Well, they never give up. We've talked earlier and other occasions about choking or loss of bottle or sort of supposed mental defect. I mean, for me, these claims are largely untestable. You know, we sort of speculate about psychological makeup of strangers based upon you know, an observed incident, either on television or as a spectator. I think this is dangerous territory. We've got you know, results are actually shaped by the relative quality of both teams. Uh, and we've got four teams now. We've got to pretty evenly matched. could argue that India are a bit out on their own, but pretty evenly matched. Uh, and um, Australia do have that um, DNA, seems to me, that uh, that get them through the close situations. Well, prediction time now for South Africa against Australia. Sebash, first of all, come on, what do you think? As I mentioned earlier, I think toss will be really important because South Africa batting first and batting second have been totally different teams. And Australia would uh, want to capitalise that situation. And the next thing is fifth bowler of Australia that we mentioned. Still, I think Australia in run of form, the way they are playing and the Maxwell inclusion into the team, I think they'll be favourites to play India in the final. John, uh, South Africa bullied Australia in uh, Lucknow at the start of the tournament. They smashed them for over 300 and then bowled them out very cheaply. Australia looked at sixes and sevens, but uh, what are your feelings for this match now? I think Australia have peaked at the right time. I think they hold the edge. Well, there we are. That's uh, our predictions for the World Cup semi-finals. We think it's going to be an India-Australia final. Let's see if uh, that all comes to pass when we wake up on Friday morning. <laughs> if it's South Africa, New Zealand, well, <laughs> we'll all have a chuckle to ourselves, I guess. 
In another news line out of sides taking part in the ICC Cricket World Cup, Sri Lanka has been suspended by the ICC following a decision by the Sri Lankan sports minister, Roshan Ranasinghe, to try and appoint an interim committee led by World Cup winning captain Arjuna Ranatunga. The ICC's member obligations are that countries must act without governmental interference in the game's governance and uh, the ICC board deemed that to be taking place within Sri Lanka. In the short term, well, the suspension doesn't have any major significance, as Sri Lanka doesn't have any cricket commitments again until at least December. But if it carries on beyond that point, then it could have a very severe impact on the sport in the country, with the threat of uh, financial distributions potentially being withheld by the ICC. There's the threat of isolation with no fixtures, and so no broadcasting and commercial revenue for Sri Lanka cricket either. And even the question mark over the hosting of the ICC Under-19 Cricket World Cup, which is due to take place in Sri Lanka early in 2024. Subhash, you've experienced this sort of situation firsthand as someone from Nepal, as that country's cricket body was suspended in 2016. What does the suspension look like from your experience? Uh, we were four years without the board functioning in our country and uh, ICC coordinate with individuals during the suspension period just for the senior team activities. But the grassroots women's cricket were hit really hard during that time and the domestic cricket didn't have any calendar and the players that were out of the national team had nothing in place. Thanks to ICC that they sanctioned uh, franchise cricket tournaments to have male players something to play for. But uh, there's no official cricket tournaments. There's no official board. So overall, the cricket scenario is different. So even after the four years of suspension, board was restored. But uh, then COVID hit and we're, we are yet to get things back on track. Hopefully, the new board will get plans sorted. But uh, the suspension effects, I think that's still hampering our country and... It kills cricket inside out. Uh, it, the problem goes exponential in big boards is what I feel. There are a lot of people depending on cricket. With suspension, there is a lot of questions on budget allocation, plan implementation. And I think Sri Lanka, I hope they'll have it sorted soon because we're even Nepal is qualified for the Under-19 World Cup. And I think this is one of the biggest events in world cricket, the Under-19 cricket. So Sri Lanka will have it tough if this suspension period lengthens because the cricket uh, will have a tough time, not just for the national team, but the grassroots and women's cricket as well. John, what do you make of this? Is just is this just a shot across the bows of Sri Lanka cricket or is there, there more to it than this? Is is this uh, is it a knee-jerk reaction to, uh, to failure helpful uh, from a Sri Lanka perspective uh, with the sports minister doing what he's done or does there need to be a root and branch overhaul of cricket in Sri Lanka uh, uh, in total? Well, I think there's a lot more going on. This has been going on in Sri Lanka for decades and I think in cricket seemingly forever. It's a big subject which you can't really cover here but I did write an article or column in um, December 22 about Sri Lanka's brolio on this matter. The battle at the moment seems to be between the sports minister and the Sri Lankan rep to the ICC who's also the chair of the Sri Lankan uh, cricket. It's reported that the latter asked, actually asked the ICC to suspend Sri Lanka, presumably to force issues, um, which appear to be over assurances or lack of them that the Sri Lankan government would support upcoming ICC events in the country. As we all know, the ICC requires its member associations to be independent of national government. 
yet at the same time accepts that domestic laws must be respected. Uh, it's difficult to see how you can have both, but it's um, always been very evident that politics and politicians and cricket are not separate in Sri Lanka. The only country which actually requires its sports associations to have their teams signed off by the sports minister before they leave country for international sporting events. Yes, on the surface, it looks like there needs to be an overhaul, but given the precedent, I would have thought that the prospects are pretty dim. It is an issue that's uh, that's plagued Sri Lanka for, for, as you say, John, many, many decades. But, Sebastian, surely politics and cricket are connected. John alluded to it there, uh, and they are connected in other countries very strongly, and, and those other countries don't get suspended. You think, for example, of Pakistan. The caretaker prime minister of Pakistan, Mr. Anwar Ulhaq Kaka, is the cricket board's patron-in-chief. And when you look at India, the BCCI secretary, Jay Shah, he's actually the son of Amit Shah, the Indian minister for home affairs. So why does this situation, do you think, differ from those? Is Is it a question of direct versus indirect involvement? I don't think you can run a board without the support of government, especially in this part of the world. It's about how much influence they have. Uh, in country like ours, it's not possible to run sports of this gravity without government people being involved. If the board and government are aligned, it's a great thing, but things get worse if they're from opposition parties. Political support is utmost. Uh, thankfully, in Nepal, the present government here is supportive and to put things into context, uh, they put three stadiums as national importance just a few days ago. We only have one at the moment. And if things go right, we'll be having four stadiums in Nepal. So th this is an example that if government is supportive towards the sport, they'll be willing to give more. But uh, like in Sri Lanka, I think uh, even in Nepal back in 2015, if government and board are not aligned, so problems will start to come. And I think Sri Lanka is facing similar one at the moment. Yes, well, John, there's an ICC board meeting in Ahmedabad after the Cricket World Cup concludes. I'm guessing we should get a clearer idea of what the next steps are after that meeting, shouldn't we? Well, I'm not holding my breath. A lot of politics is going to be played over this one in the next few days. To me, it looks like a skirmish in, in the ongoing battle uh, in Sri Lanka. And this one is very overt. And as Shabash has mentioned, there is much more covert entanglement between politics and cricket throughout the uh, cricket world that escapes the governor's net. Interesting that the ICC did not lay down any conditions uh, for the suspension. Sort of indicates, I think, that they might have been taken a little bit by surprise or leaving the uh, window open for the ongoing discussions that are no doubt going to take place within Sri Lanka and between Sri Lanka and the ICC. Well, we'll keep across this issue for you here on the wicket. And it's uh, a story, as John mentioned there, that's going to run and run. Let's switch now to women's cricket and the one day international series between Bangladesh and Pakistan's women wrapped up in Mirpur on Friday the 10th of November. And it was a convincing win in the final match for the hosts by seven wickets to ensure they took the series two matches to one. Pakistan struggled to 166 for nine batting first in the decider. And they laboured in the face of a pitch with very little pace and an attack which featured 44 out of 50 overs from spin. In reply, Bangladesh cruised to victory with more than four overs to spare, propelled by an opening partnership of 125 between Fargana Hock and uh, Murshida Khatan. 
the former making 62 and the latter 54. A reminder that these matches mean points in the ICC Women's Championship. It's a 10-team series with only the top five plus hosts India securing direct entry to the next Women's Cricket World Cup in 2025. Those below the line, they have to battle it out in the qualifier. This series result means Pakistan now sit fifth, but they've played more matches than every side above them, and importantly, more than the side two points below them in sixth, that's New Zealand. And although Bangladesh are eighth, they're level on points, and with three matches in hand on the side directly above them, Sri Lanka, and just one point behind New Zealand. Sebash, that's two series wins in a row for Bangladesh, as they also won the, the T20I series 2-1 as well. So a really successful bilateral tour as far as they're concerned. Can you see real progress for them? Yeah, absolutely. Their progress in 2023 should be talked about more. I think they picked Pakistan in both the home series. They won bronze in Asian Games, beating Pakistan as well. And Pakistan were considered to be in line with India and Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, I think, beating them have sent a real statement. Uh, if you remember, I will, Nepal and Bangladesh started women's cricket at the same point and now we see them fighting off against the world's best teams. Bangladesh are a team to watch with results what they have produced and the last ODI, the decider, I think they put their real testament uh, with the batting that says they made it quite comfortable and proved that they're here to fight against these big teams. Beyond problems, though, for Pakistan, they've, they've now played more matches than most of their rivals in the ICC Women's Championship. And it means that uh, there's a strong possibility now that they could be faced with having to qualify for that uh, 2025 uh, Women's World Cup. Yes, uh, teams uh, above and below them have played at least three matches fewer. I think several, even five matches fewer. So it does mean that Pakistan could well be squeezed out. Yes, uh, real problems for them. We'll stay across, of course, that ICC Women's Championship because it's uh, starting to move towards a conclusion now. Exciting times ahead for the women's game. And uh, we'll keep you in touch here on The Wicket. Finally, regular listeners to our podcast will know that in our last episode, John mentioned that he was all set to visit the Blades of Glory Cricket Museum in Pune. It's reputedly the biggest museum of its kind in the world. John, did it live up to that billing and to your expectations? Well, it was a very unprepossessing location. Uh, it took me about an hour by cab from where I was staying. Residential apartment residential street so it's not uh, an at-ground museum such as you'll find at, at Lords or Wellington for example uh, but in terms of numbers of items uh, there are about 2,000 on show and there are an estimated not by me but uh, 70,000 in store and I was fortunate enough to be able to um, see those and there were some really quite tear-jerking uh, items amongst them and more are arriving daily as they've been in touch with the teams who are playing in the, the World Cup and are being left items of equipment uh, for collection after the tournament's over. It's a real treasure trove for cricket lovers. The real focus of uh, attention is bats of triple hundred makers and it does make you realise the difference in the, the thickness of bats from a time when it recently is uh, Garfield Sobers with his triple hundred, you know, wafer thin bats compared to the ones that are now being used. There's an area devoted to, uh, to Sachin who um, was uh, instrumental in kicking this off. 
by giving the founder and driver of the museum um, his uh, a bat. Um, that gentleman is Rohan Pate. He's very driven on this matter. It's um, it's not quite. It's almost a hobby for him. But he knows well that he needs to have more public displays, uh, and he's working on sealing some deals at Stadia in 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 India and also internationally. I've got a bit more to say on this uh, in my column, but I think we can we can expect to see some expansion uh, of this uh, concept more widely over the next four to five years. So there you are. Uh... Listeners, uh, well worth a trip to Pune. And if you want uh, a little bit more detail, by all means, please go to uh, John's column in Arab News to uh, to have a read of that. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for uh, being with us today. That's your lot for a special episode of The Wicket, previewing the ICC Cricket World Cup semi-finals. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back soon with more cricket chat from the Gulf region, Asia and worldwide. Please don't forget to like, subscribe and comment on what you've heard wherever you get your podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback and let us know if there's anything you'd like us to feature in future episodes. For now, though, this is Brian Murgatroyd along with John Pike and Shabash Hummagain saying thanks for listening and we look forward to your company next time. 